It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Today on the program, I'll start by telling you about the second part of the show first. Our guest, country singer Jerry Serrata, who is creating a buzz with his energetic performances and fun time songs, will be on the line. He has several songs on the charts, and he will join us to talk about his latest album, so stick around for that. But right now, what does it mean to be in relation? What does that statement even mean? My guest today, in the first part of the show, may be able to shed some light on that and more, at least in relation to the Toronto Biennial Art Exhibition, taking place from September 21st to December 1st. Candace Hopkins is the senior curator of the Toronto Biennial of Art 2019. She is also a writer and researcher, predominantly exploring history, art, and indigeneity, along with their intersections. The 10-week exhibition will feature over 70 local and international program participants that will lead talks, workshops, and performances, all intersecting on the question, what does it mean to be in relation? There it is, the question. (laughs) What does it mean to be in relation? Uh, what does that mean? Why come up with that that statement? Candice, welcome to the show today. So we wanted to be a little bit different with this exhibition. We wanted to organize it around a question rather than a theme. And the reason we came to the question was actually sparked by Toronto. Mm. Um, part of the reason is because the biennial is located in, along the waterfront. And what I found when I moved to Toronto from New Mexico is that, you know, Toronto is actually quite cut off from the water. Um, It feels sometimes like the city has its back to the water. So we thought, you know, what about this question of what difference would it make if we had a different kind of relation to the water, considering that this is why people settled here in the first place Mm. more than 13,000 years ago. But it's also driving a lot of conversations that artists are having at the moment. And those are conversations around the environment and what is called the Anthropocene. So many people argue that we're, we're in a moment of where human-made change to the climate is actually bringing on a different era. And that era is called the Anthropocene. Oh, interesting. So when the participants, or the participants, I guess they're all aware of this and this is how that this is going to move forward? That's right. So we pose the question to artists Mm -hmm. um, to see what their answers are. And in some cases, their artworks are their answers. Mm. And they range from ideas like um, one is a speculative science fiction that asks, you know, what would the world look like when all of the other places on Earth are uninhabitable except for Antarctica? So that's a work by Cyrus Marcus Ware. And this follows different characters who are tasked through birthright citizenship to form new colonies on Antarctica. And for some of them, that's a pretty uncomfortable proposition, in fact, because they were already kind of questioning colonialism to begin with, and now they're being tasked with it. That sounds very interesting. Uh, Can you give us more of a sense of the actual physicality of where you mentioned the waterfront? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where is this going to actually take place? Yeah, it's a great question. So it moves all the way from Mississauga on the westernmost point to the edge of the Portlands. Um, two of our largest venues, the one is the Small Arms Inspection Building in Mississauga that was recently um, transformed into a, cul- a cultural space. It was um, made in during World War II, in fact, um, as a place to manufacture small munitions. And then All the way moving into the Portlands, we have 259 Lakeshore Boulevard East, which is a former car dealership. It's about 42,000 square feet. (laughs) And it's divided part into a warehouse and part into a showroom. And artists have really been excited by this space. And I think it's a good example of the kind of building that took place in the Portlands that were very much based around manufacture and industry. That that sounds very interesting. Just the just those two different spaces sound wildly different, and of course, interesting. A used car lot and uh, and an ammunition or a, a used building that was used for military purposes. Interesting in itself. I, I really like the comment you made earlier, though, uh, coming from New Mexico. You said, "Did you, were you were you are you from New Mexico originally?" Or? 
I'm actually from the Yukon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a citizen of Carcross Tegish First Nation, and I've been living in New Mexico for the past seven years in Albuquerque, um, working in the arts. <laughs> 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 I know. So Toronto is quite different, but I always like working in these different cities because I think that you bring a fresh perspective. And that was also the idea that any of the curators working on this exhibition also had to move to Toronto. So, you know, there was something that tweaked when you said New Mexico and Toronto waterfront with its back to the water. I thought that was a very interesting statement Mm -hmm. as well to make. It does feel like Toronto has its back to the water. Yeah, so we thought this exhibition is a chance to reorientate people's views. Um, So that is one of the things that I think signifies Toronto as a city is its relationship to the water. But what we learned is that it's not only this kind of different relationship to the lake, but also the fact that Toronto actively buried all of its rivers as well, except for the Don and Etobicoke Creek. And I think in some ways with the burying of those rivers came the burying of a kind of history. So one of the first things we did as part of the exhibition is we commissioned Ange Loft, who's a Mohawk artist, to author for us what's called the Indigenous Context Brief, which traces um, more than a thousand years of Indigenous history here all the way to the formation of Toronto and beyond. And that's a document that we provided to artists, no matter where they're from, whether they were from Thailand or whether they're from the United States or Colombia. Um, And as a result, I think many artists were really intrigued by this kind of layering of of the history here. Um, Because with any city, sometimes when, you know, new things are built up, there's a kind of act of forgetting of the past. Mm. One more question about New Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) can you tell i love new mexico uh but actually i'm just wondering because of the time you spent there did that did that give you sort of a a different perspective uh because i don't i don't i don't think new mexico has huge massive amounts of water it's kind of desert-like in many areas Mm -hmm. so of course water is one of the most important you know topics in a desert area And most of the water that is in New Mexico is driven by aquifers. But that's where, as a curator, I really became interested in the idea of water politics. Um, and so that's something that I look to here to think about, you know, how if we reorientate our perspective to the water, how does that shift our understanding of this city? Hmm. So can you tell us more about some of the participants that are coming from around? Uh, it's, it's an international um, exhibition. Absolutely. So we have people, you know, coming all the way from from Thailand, from different parts in Europe, um, from Mexico, and I'll describe a couple of projects for you. Please, yeah. One, um, one is about uh, the migration of monarch butterflies, and so what the artist has done, Fernando Palma Rodriguez, he actually lives just outside of Mexico City, where there is a monarch um, breeding area, and he was interested in the fact that these are the only species that migrate between the two countries. Um, but what he's done is he's actually made robotic butterflies out of cutting cans and robotics that respond to seismic information from Mexico, but they actually open and close their wings and fly exactly like real butterflies. And so what he was asking was a question of, you know, what does it mean when we put so much of our faith into technology and mm. when these when this technology starts to fail as well? Um, another artist that we have been working with is from Colombia. His name is Abel Rodriguez. And Abel was first trained, actually, to work with plants with medicinal healing by his grandfather. And he was pushed off his land um, by the paramilitary in the mm-hmm. 90s. And as a result, he's made thousands of drawings that document this traditional knowledge and books. And so the drawings become a kind of archive or repro- repository of this knowledge. Now... It sounds, you mentioned a couple of indigenous artists uh, as well. Is, is the, are all the artists uh, that are taking part indigenous? They aren't. Um, we have, you know, artists from everywhere. But I think given that we live in a moment of truth and reconciliation, this is a really important history to, to work with in Toronto. But I think it's actually what sets Canada's art apart from other art that's happening in the world at the moment are these kinds of conversations. So something that we were interesting, interested in having and provoking. Um, what we've also done then is enable, you know, collaborations from different artists from different parts of the world as well. So kind of rare opportunity for them to work together. How the exhibitions and these talks and presentations and performances I imagine they all vary in length and, and that kind of thing. 
can you give us sort of an of a sense uh, if someone were to come uh, to experience what kind of time they might need to you know to to enjoy it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually um, 15 venues. So there's a lot of venues. Mm. So we think that for people here in Toronto, you'll need a good couple of days. Um, but we hope that people return because there are different events happening, many events happening every week, and they mm. range from you know, workshops to music performances to conversations. Um, the exhibition will also be um, animated by people we're calling storytellers. Okay. So you can book these tours through the exhibition where you'll learn from their perspective. And it's kind of not the usual way that you learn art education. Um, but we have a lot of really amazing people coming in. One is Marshall Trammell. He's um, a black musician who's worked before with a group called Black Spirituals, who's doing a new performance for percussion and also these custom-made ceramic jugs. Um, mm. So there's there's a lot of variety. And one thing that we hoped is that it just keeps people coming back for more. Um, so, I mean, it sounds fascinating and it sounds wonderful. Um People can go to the website, I guess, for more information? Yeah, the website has all the information on all of the venues. I think it's really important to note that everything is free. Oh, it um, is. I was going to ask that It's absolutely next. free because we're really committed to accessibility. We don't want to have any economic barriers to anything that we're doing. Um, and with that idea, you know, anything that we're, that we're doing will be online, but um, a lot of programs will be online too. Mm. Now... I know this isn't the first uh, project that you've been the curator for. You've done other things. But I'm just wondering, this particular event, uh, what were some of the challenges for you in bringing this together? Well, for one, this is the first that Toronto's had. So it's the inaugural biennial. Mm. It's also not a small thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're working in, in 15 different venues simultaneously. We commissioned more than 20 new works, and some of them are huge, including a six-channel video installation by Erin Rungjang, who's from Bangkok, Thailand, um, a work that's a large-scale diorama by Curtis Talwas Santiago that's in the Portlands. Um, so I think it relied on a lot of partnerships, and those partnerships would not have been possible without the help of a huge team. Um, so a lot of questions that we asked people, potential collaborators, when we first started, which include other museums like Art Gallery of York University and... University of Toronto Art Museum is, you know, what's a project you've always wanted to do, but you haven't gotten off the ground yet? Mm. And I think that was a good way to start. Um, A lot of great projects came to us that way. But I also think that, you know, our intention wasn't to come here to take over space, but our intention was to come here and work together. Mm. I'd like to go back to the original question of what does it mean to be in relation uh, when you presented this to the, the people that are participating, I'm, I'm wondering, because it's an international uh, exhibition, um, what what did that stimulate from some of these people in terms of their own places that they are coming from? Did, did you get any comments back about how it either reflects on something or how, you know, they might have... They might have say, "Hey, this is really interesting for where I am coming from," and you know, from this question's perspective as well. Yeah, I think no matter where artists were coming from, one of the things that we did at the beginning was to make sure that they come here very mm. early, that they come to Toronto, and so that meant that a lot of people were bringing their experiences to this place. Um, one artist, Maria Teresa Alves, who's originally from Brazil. She has, for the course of her career, so for more than 40 years, been really interested in plant life. So one of the first places we took her was to the Don River Valley. And the Don, because it's been such a polluted river, it means that actually over 80% of the plant life there is non-endemic or not from this, Mm. this area because the ground has changed so much. And then she became really fascinated in the history of the Lost Rivers. And one of her projects is documenting one of the rivers as well as this um, communal excavation of a bridge that used to go over one of the rivers. Mm. And so I think people always take their their prior experiences and then in a way think about how they relate to this place. And so I think her work is a really good example of that. Another is um, Althea Thalberger, who's an artist based in Vancouver, and Suzanne Kite, who originally comes from California, who's a composer. 
And they've been collaborating with the HMCS York, which is the Navy, mm. and they're doing a live performance within their stone ship with, um, we believe, the only conch shell sextet to exist in <laughs> North America, um, which is, you know, housed by the Navy. And so Suzanne wrote new compositions for them, and there will be performance, a live performance on the 21st. So that's our opening day on Saturday. That sounds very cool. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. Uh, anyone from any artists or, or, or uh, pre- presenters from the Ottawa area? You know? From the Ottawa area? That's a really good question. Not that I know of from Ottawa, but over half of the participants that we have come from Canada mm. and many from Toronto. Because mm. we really thought about, you know, how can this exhibition support local practices too? So we've commissioned a lot of Toronto-based artists as well. And, and it is a large exhibition, so it obviously uh, uh, took a lot to to bring together, as you say. But you're also looking for donations as well. That's right. Um, Because it's a free event, that means that we rely on different forms of sponsorship and partnership. We've been very successful in in receiving a lot of support from the private sector as well as the public sector. Um, But in order to make this sustainable, I think it needs the contributions also of people from Toronto as well because it's really for them. Now, because it's 10 weeks long, does that mean that these are all running each exhibition or each uh, presenter is doing a 10-week presentation as well? That's right. So all the artists that we've invited to participate have their works up for the full 10 weeks. Some of those, you know, change a little bit over time. Um, But then within that, there's many different performances. Many are just one night only and workshops. And Mm. so the exhibition will be activated in many different ways over the course of that 10 weeks. Can you give us a sense of some of the uh, uh, some of the talks, presentations in terms of the workshops and those kind of things that will be happening? So Lou Shepard is um, a sound artist, and what Lou is interested in in exploring are the sounds of bird calls that you don't hear anymore because of environmental change. And so what Lou will be doing in the back of in the Arsenal lands behind the Small Arms Inspection Building will be hosting a kind of listening session to listen to some of these lost um, bird sounds. Another artist who we're bringing in from New York, uh, Laura Ortman, who's an Apache violinist, um, she really believes that what she does with her violin is she sculpts with sound. Mm. Um, So it's unlike anything I've ever heard, um, the kind of work that she does. And then we're going to be delving into or uncovering um, different kinds of histories with some of our talks as well. And there's a great um, local Toronto artist named Bonnie Devine who will be speaking as part of that, um, really thinking about also um, the history of the Toronto Purchase or the so-called Toronto Purchase too. So some of these talks really delve into the history of Toronto very specifically um, to really expand, I think, our own understanding of how this place came to be. You're listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest right now is Candice uh, let me start that again because I'm looking all over my page here, so we'll just fix that up. You're listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest is Candace Hopkins. She is the curator for the Toronto Biennial of Art for 2019, and that's coming up September 21st to December 1st. And as she was mentioning, uh, it's going to take place in quite a large area, uh, going uh, west to Mississauga and coming into the Toronto area itself. In many uh, in many venues, it's all free, and uh, you can participate. And you can find out more by going to the uh, Toronto Biennial of Art uh, website. And uh, is that just uh, Toronto Biennial Art of Art two thousand nineteen dot com? Is that what it's that Toronto Biennial dot <laughs> org? Okay, there you go. I should have looked that up a little earlier, but anyway, I, I'd like to ask you about. The, the time of year that this is taking place, because it's going to go right from fall and into the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, has that been taken into consideration in terms of any of the presentations? Yeah, we know that some of them, for example, especially the outdoor ones, will change. Part of the reason for starting into, in the fall and going into the winter was so that we overlapped with the school year, because we're doing a lot of mm. school programs as well. Um, including enabling um, a free shuttle for students to come to the biennial too. And I think for, for many artists, this was, you know, this was an interesting point to have a work that responds to the seasons. 
So one of one of the examples as well, which I mentioned before, is a is an audio work by Lou Shepard that will be installed in the Toronto Sculpture Garden. And it's based on bird songs. Mm. And, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to listen to the work as it's as it. I think responds to also local birds in the area and how that changes over time. Mm. Um, but certainly this, this was definitely taken into account and also the idea that, you know, for, for art, actually the fall tends to be the most busy season. And we also had to align it with other biennial events happening internationally. So we had mm. a calendar that we worked with so that we could um, slot this in at the appropriate time and also so that it takes place around the same time as the there's a big architecture biennial in Chicago that opens just a couple of days before ours. So how these big events along the Great Lakes as well are kind of tied together. Interesting. Now you mentioned the opening uh, the opening day on September 21st and this interesting performance uh, with the with uh, HMCS York and a conch shell a performance of six, I believe. <laughs> it's a sextet, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that will be very interesting to hear the harmonies if they're if they're doing any. Um, but the other thing I was wondering about being the opening day mm-hmm. and being you mentioned the Toronto Purchase as well. So I was wondering about uh, involvement from the Mississaugas of the Credit. Yeah. So we um, there will be a welcome as well um, from the Mississaugas, but we've also you know been thinking about you know, the kind of layers of Toronto's history, mm. too, within that. Um, and also, I think this is a reason why there's been so much participation by Indigenous artists in the exhibition as a whole. Um, but I think that it's, you know, these kinds of relationships are really foundational to what any exhibition should be doing at the moment. So, yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. Now, there was something else I wanted to ask you about, and it has to do with yourself, because, as I mentioned earlier, this isn't the first uh, thing that you've you've curated, you, but you're also a, a researcher and you've worked on a number of things and you've, you've written some things. Uh, how did this all become of interest to you when you first started? That's a good question. So I first went to art school and that was in 1995. And um, between that and after art school, I went back to Fort St. John, which is in northern British Columbia. Uh, it's a small town along the Alaska Highway, and I worked for a cultural center there and also a gallery. And I was really thinking about, you know, what I could do in art that was also beneficial to others. So mm. I stopped making my own work and um, actually moved to Fiji for a period and worked with a Indigenous Traditional Medicine Organization. And it was there that I was asked to organize an exhibition for them for um, Expo 2000 in Hanover, Germany. And then I realized that, you know, maybe this is a career. Um, so I went to graduate school in upstate New York for curatorial studies. And then from there, started working for um, different art spaces, including mm. the Bant Center for the Arts, a small artist-run center um, that was founded in the early 70s in Vancouver called Western Front that was really known for its avant-garde work. And then um, I worked for the National Gallery of Canada, working on their uh, largest survey of Indigenous art that was called Sagahan. And when I moved to New Mexico, I started working um, with Site Santa Fe, um, and they have have actually the oldest biennial exhibition in the United States, the oldest international biennial. And then um, from there, I worked on a major exhibition in Germany and Athens, Greece, called Documenta, that was founded in the mid-50s, and it takes place every five years. And through all of those exhibitions, I was always interested in the dialogue that Canadian art can have, you know, within an international platform. And how the kinds of questions that Canadian artists are having um, in their work at the moment are sort of infused and related to these kind of broader dialogues that are happening around the world, too. Mm. Well, I must say, you've really picked some difficult places to uh, set up shop, you know, <laughs> Fiji, New Mexico, <laughs> Greece. <laughs> That's great. It gives you a very wide perspective to pull from and some, some wonderful places to, to visit as well as work in. So that, So congratulations. Uh, what's what's next for you as you look forward? What what do you have any plans for after this? I do because this is actually um, part of the reason why I was really excited about working on the Toronto Biennial is the fact that we've been invited to work as curators, both Tyrone Bastian and I, on both the 2019 and 2021 editions. Mm. And this kind of never happens within exhibition making. I think exhibitions, especially biennials, are interested in every time they do one to have something that's 
completely new. Because this was the first one, we knew that we wanted to set a strong foundation at the beginning to work with collaborations with other museums and artists and sort of build it up a little bit more slowly. And so that means that certain artists that we're working with for this edition will continue their projects. Um, like Susan Shoopley, who's originally from Canada but lives in the, in the United Kingdom. She's one of the co-founders of a great research project called Forensic Architecture. So they're uh, taking a different view of architectural practice. But what she's been doing as part of her work for the Toronto Biennial is researching different ice core archives, which I bet you don't, didn't know existed. <laughs> they're around the world. And mm. some ice cores can, in fact, be as long as five kilometers long. Mm. And for her, these are really witnesses, she believes, to climate change. And they're frequently being looked at and understood as such as kind of lenses into the past. Mm. Um, you know, in some cases, more than tens of thousands of years. And so she visited an ice core archive in Edmonton, in Oregon. She'll be going to Svalbard Archipelago, which is in the Arctic as well, to continue this research. And so for us, it's an opportunity to work with artists for, you know, almost four years, which is a really rare opportunity for a curator. Wow, that sounds great. Congratulations once again. Fabulous and, and very interesting things that you have uh, you have uh, both worked on and lined up for the future for yourself. So all the best, and we look forward to uh, seeing this not only this year, but of course in the next uh, couple of years as well as it rolls out. Thank you, David. Anything else that you feel is important to mention that we may not have touched on? Well, I think that what's important for any exhibition is that you know, exhibitions are really for everyone. And I think because this exhibition is so broad, it has a lot of different levels of, of appeal. You know, I, we really encourage people to bring their children to this, to visit multiple times, um, to really see it as a kind of resource for you. Seven days a week, is this going to be operating? Weekend it's based open or? every day except for Tuesday. Oh, every day but Tuesday. Okay, interesting to know as well. If you are interested in uh, learning more, you can go to the uh, Toronto Biennial website. It's torontobiennial.org, is that correct? That's correct. And you can learn more about this, how to participate, how to find out where to, uh, what locations are available for this. And, uh, and that opens on September 21st. The opening ceremonies, I guess, we're going to be in Toronto. You mentioned uh, HMCS York. So mm -hmm. are they taking place at HMCS York? That's a performance that'll take place in the afternoon, okay. but everything begins at 259 Lakeshore Boulevard East at 11 a.m. Okay. So that's September 21st, and it runs until December the 1st, uh, 2019. My guest today has been Candace Hopkins. She is the senior curator for the Toronto Biennial of Art 2019 in its inaugural year, but she will be back for next year and the next couple of years. So we want to say congratulations to her and also say uh, Nyawa and Miigwech for coming in today. Miigwech. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. The second part of the show today, Jerry Serrata is a Métis country singer with a sound compared to Garth Brooks and Tim McGraw. Not too shabby, if you ask me. Now, he was, uh, he, he's taken some time off after his second album and he went back to school, but he's back at it. In fact, he just recently performed at the Toronto... Uh, CNE exhibition just uh, just maybe a week or two ago, and it just so happened that we were set up there. Element FM was set up at the CNE, and Jerry walked up to uh, one of the guys at the booth and said, "Hey, I heard about you guys. I know the station," and handed uh, handed us one of his CDs. And uh, from there, it went on to, "Hey, we got to check this guy out and maybe get him online." So he is joining us on the line right now from uh, parts out west. I believe he's in Alberta. Jerry, it's a pleasure to have you here on the show today. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm, I'm super excited. I mean, I was super excited to meet uh, some of the people from the station. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to when I make it out to Toronto to pop into the station to come visit everybody. Well, that would be great. In fact, I was hoping that you were here today. So, you know, but that's okay. Now, you know, Jerry, I have to tell you that um, I, I, you know, I, I haven't met you in person. I didn't see you at the CNE. However... Um, I have seen some of your videos and listened to some of your material, of course. Very well produced. Sounds great. Um, Thank you. Very much in the vein of the music that you're doing, of course. Um, yeah. But I also want to say that, you know, from what I've seen and what, I, what, I've, what I've listened to, uh, your music comes across as very sort of um, 
up-tempo, it's very uh, energetic, and it's very fun-time kind of uh, stuff that you're, you're doing. Yeah, I mean, most of our live shows, I, I love to... I love to really bring the energy and bring people into it. I'm very animated on stage, very active. I do take a page from a lot of the the newer uh, country musicians and rock musicians. I think Mm. that when people come to see a live show, it should be more than just the songs that people can, can hear on the radios and, 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 you know, listen to at home. Um, I, I want them to walk away from the experience saying, wow, that was pretty cool. That's something I haven't seen, or that's something that, you know, kind of really inspired me to come to more of the shows that are, that I'm going to be putting on when we're mm. in the area. Mm. Now, uh, you were you were just telling me before we got on the air that uh, you've got a, a, a song on uh, the Indigenous Music Countdown at the moment. I think you said around the number 15. Yeah, number 15. It's a song called Undam Wind It. That was released back in June. And uh, it, it's, again, it's a short kind of up-tempo song just about the fact in, in this day and age where everybody's under all kinds of different stresses, I think there's just, it needs to be pointed out once in a while that you need to take time for yourself to unwind. So um, we just called it Undam Winded, and it's just <laughs> about that. It's about having a good time and, and finding a place where, you know, you can have good time with friends or, or by yourself or however it is that you like to enjoy your, your personal time. So how did the gig go at the CNE for you, by the way? I wasn't there to see it. It's really good. Um, I mean, after talking to the sound guys, um, I, I guess they were a little shocked because I have a tendency not to stay on the stage, and they weren't <laughs> used to that. They came up to me, and they're like, that has to be the first time in... I, I think the guys that I was working with had been doing that for 25 years, and they said, I think that's the first time an artist came off stage and luckily they have all those little cement pillars all over the place. So I would just jump up on those and that would become stage two or stage <laughs> three. And because it was, it was such a nice, beautiful time at the CNE when I was playing, it was hot. So everybody was mm. kind of staying back underneath the umbrellas and you know, the little space they had cleared for people to dance, it removes me from my audience. And I, I want to see people. I want to, mm. you know, have face-to-face contact with people. So if I need, if they're not moving closer to me, then I'm moving closer to them. Right. Now, uh, Jerry, how long have you been doing this? I've been doing it since um, probably 2009. I think in two, it was in 2009 I started, you know, I, I felt I had enough confidence to go and enter a few of those, you know, local bar competitions that mm-hmm. they'd have where I'd take my guitar and I'd go try sing a song and, and um, it was around that time, I, you know, to be honest, there, there's uh, the Manitowabi Festival that's held in Winnipeg. They had a, a star catcher contest where it was kind of like that. And I was one of the top three finalists. And uh, Manitowabi and um, the Indigenous uh, Music Awards helped promote us for a year. Mm. And that really gave me some good exposure and some good footing to start. Um, and then I just kind of fell in love with it even more than I'd already been in love with it. And I just, I, this was something I needed to do. I just kept pursuing and finding new opportunities to play. And, you know, eventually it, it, it got into the realm of being signed and, you know, working with all kinds of great writers from, you know, across Canada, across the U S and, uh, it's been a great experience and I just keep doing it. Now, uh, that experience of, of being exposed to writers and uh, other musicians in the industry, uh, how much do you, do you feel that has benefited you? You know, the whole experience benefits anybody who's interested in, in becoming an artist of any form. I mean, I, going into a studio and consistently singing the same song over and over again until I get it right um, is the best vocal training I think I've ever had in my life. Mm. And it's no different than, you know, the first couple times I walked into rooms with some of the big Nashville writers, um, I, I felt like I had nothing to contribute because I would say something. And it's not that they would be dismissive, but their their brains are turning so quickly. They take in what I say and then they try to build something out of that idea or come up with a stronger word or you know, a better scheme or it's 
they, they do listen to your ideas, but the ability for them to turn it into musical poetry is absolutely outstanding. And I mean, that was very humbling. I think, um, not that I've ever considered myself to be a top notch writer, but you see the, the difference in, in, um, somebody like myself who'd only started writing a few years prior and somebody who's been writing for the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. Like these guys, they, they're pumping out four or five songs a day sometimes. And they're, they're really good songs. They're not all great, but they're, they're good songs. Right. So listen, for some reason, when I see your name, uh, is Winnipeg home for you? Is that where you were raised? Um, yeah, I was born just north of Winnipeg, but I grew up back and forth from a place called uh, Matheson Island, which is north of uh, about two and a half hours north of Winnipeg and a small community that's north of Dauphin, Manitoba. So I spent all of my life growing up in Manitoba, you know, uh, in the Duck Mountain Provincial Park, on Lake Winnipeg. So there was always, you know, hunting, fishing, trapping, um, uh, really grew to enjoy all of the scenery and, and recreational activities that living in the country has to offer. And then I moved back to Winnipeg when I went to university. That's when I moved back. Mm. If you don't mind me asking, as a Métis artist, um, are you, how connected were you to the Indigenous side of your, your heritage? Very connected. I mean, uh, my mom always grew up uh, introducing us to uh, traditional Métis, uh, you know, culture, foods, um, music, and that's where I really grew to love it. And uh, I grew up knowing a lot more about my mother's side of the family than my father's side. Um, and, and not for any other reason other than my father's side of the family is a little bit less about community and more about individualism, which again, as I think, I think is why uh, I really related to my, uh, my Métis background was that the fact that, um, you know, in the indigenous community, we're all about building community and we're all about helping one another. And we're all about sharing stories and traditions and, and, you know, putting on good, good events, good uh, festivals and, and great, you know, events where we can share all of that mm. as a community. Right. Now I have to ask this because, and, and I was leading into this when I asked you about Manitoba and Winnipeg and things, because another Serata comes to mind when I think of music, and it's in, in jazz music. Are you related to someone in that is involved with jazz in Toronto? Not, not, I'm not sure where. I just know that Serata and jazz and Métis came to mind when I saw your name. So uh, I'm just wondering if you're familiar or you know who I'm talking about because I can't think of the person's uh, name. Sorry. <laughs> I, I might. I might. I, I believe. Um, when I first came out to Toronto, uh, when we shot the music video for I Ain't Learned Nothing Yet, we shot that at the, um, it's kind of like a rail car museum just outside of Toronto. Mm -hmm. Um, and we shot that with Big Soul Productions and that was through APTN. Mm. But, um, we, when I came out there, I was looking for just kind of a, a backup band to kind of help fill in the video mm -hmm. and, one of my cousins that's out there um, is a musician, and he's a Serretta too. Mm. Um, I connected with him, uh, but then he wasn't able to do it in the end. So we kind of lucked out when we got to Big Soul Productions. We were kind of like, well, the band fell through. Maybe we'll just put together a new idea. But then as we were walking out of the studio, there was a, a local band kind of a rock band, and I believe now the, the lead guitar player singer is actually living in Nashville, and he's a country singer, but they were called Little Black Dress, and they had just come out of the studio recording something. We asked them, do you want to be in a music video? And they said, sure. So <laughs> they became my band for that video, and it was, you know, a stroke of luck. That's great. But you've also shared the stage with uh, Shane Yellowbird and Donnie Parento as well. Absolutely, yeah. I've I've known those guys since they started their, well, not, not Donnie. Donnie started his career way before I was even around. But Shane and I kind of started at the same time, and, and I did share the stage with him a few times. And, and Donnie's a great guy, too. You know, amazing musician. I don't know if there's an instrument he can't play. So, mm. always so, a pleasure. 
you know, the other thing I noticed from your website is you you mentioned your family earlier, and do you uh, you have that family connection that you I think hold still dear uh, because there's a video of you uh, playing your acoustic uh, to your grandmother, I think it is, or your mother that's in the audience one particular day. It's a cover tune, I think you did. Yeah, I always dedicate that tune to her. Um, she's been such a staple in my life. She was the one who taught me how to play guitar. Mm. And, you know, an awesome soul. And, you know, I always dedicate the songs that I grew up with that she played me and my grandpa played me. I always take that opportunity because, like I said, I always do the upbeat show and I want to get people involved by building the energy. But in most of the shows that I do, I always do one or two slowed down acoustic tunes, either from the stories that, uh, that I grew up with uh, to kind of help connect my role to country music to how I got to where I am now. So, you know, the songs I listened to by, you know, Hank Williams or George Jones or uh, Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, um, Patsy Cline, Loretta Lynn, all the way up to, you know, some of the newer songs that I've written that they, they have a place. I have yet to release um, a slow tune to radio, and I think we've released, I think we're on number seven now, so we're about due for a slow tune, mm. and I think that's going to be the one coming in February. Mm. That sounds great. It's already, it, yeah, it's, I'm excited for that too, because it's a change of pace for me. Now, the videos, as people go to your website, as I mentioned, this I kind of alluded to it, um, is that the, the, a lot of the, the music uh, has to do with uh you know, going out to the bar and and uh, uh, having a few drinks and and uh, yeah. working too hard this week. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of the theme is is in those is in those songs. Yeah, there there is, and I mean, part of that was because um, you know back back when that album was being built and the songs were being put together for that, I think that was a it wasn't a big part of my life, but it was more of a part of my life than it is now. Hmm. I mean, now I'm more about the the easy life, the going to the lakes and, you know, hanging out with family. And so it's a fine balance. Hmm. I think my music is uh, maturing mm-hmm. as I am mm-hmm. over time. And um, there's new stuff coming out. But of course, those classic country themes keep coming up and popping up. And, and I think, especially because you know, I, I've lived across the prairies here, and when we get hit with winter, it's winter. So when we get to enjoy summer, there's nothing like a patio and and, and a nice beverage with a with a friend or a family member to, to just unwind because it's you know after you've survived uh, minus thirty five winters, it's just uh, it's a breath of fresh air. I hear you. I hear you. Well said. Um, so listen, as I mentioned earlier, your sound, uh, you've been compared to Garth Brooks and Tim McGraw, which is not bad. And uh, you've got a great sound, got uh, that great country look. You, you don't look like a small man, Jerry. Uh, I, I don't think I'm too small. I'm about, uh, I, I, I range in weight, but I'm, I'm usually around... No, what I meant by, sorry, let me correct myself. What I meant by that is height-wise. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you don't, yeah. I'm... I'm no, I'm six four. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. The camera likes you, and you fill up that that uh, that camera lens very well because of your stature. So, you know, uh, I noticed that right away from your videos. I think that's one of the reasons I'm kind of happy you're not here, because you know I'd probably be looking <laughs> at your armpit or something like that. So. <laughs> Well, I'll be there soon. Like I do want to come in and see see everybody back when I'm in Toronto. So we'll 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 be happy to have you, and I'll be uh, very very much uh, uh, obliged to meet you when you are able to make it. I just want to interject right now and say you are listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the air with us right now is Jerry Sarita, and he is a, a Métis Canadian country musician, and uh, he's got a couple of songs out right now. He's got one uh, number fifteen on the Indigenous Music Countdown. And Jerry, I'll let you say that name again. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Undam Wind It. Um, undam all Wind It, word. right. Yeah, it's all one word. And uh, you've got, uh, as you mentioned, something else coming up in the in the near future as well. Yeah, we have, uh, we're just putting the finishing touches on uh, a new single. Um, I just need to, 
I'd like to give it another vocal take this weekend when I'm down in my, my producer's from Calgary. Uh, his name's Troy Kokel. He's a great songwriter. Um, also an indigenous artist. Um, so I'm working with him and, you know, we're just putting the finishing touches on a song called rock in the trailer. And that is due out end of this month or beginning of October. We just were finaling, finalizing that and making sure everything's in place before we send it out to radio. Um, so that that's in the works. And, and as I mentioned a little earlier, our first slow song will be coming out um, after the Christmas rush has settled down a bit mm. in, in late January, early February. Great. Um, listen, I'm just wondering. You were just here in uh, in Ontario and in Toronto. Now you, we have audience in Toronto and Ottawa. Are you going to be performing in the Toronto Ottawa area in the n- near future? I've had a few invites to come out there and do a few um, Indigenous events. Um, I'm definitely hoping that uh, we can confirm those and that I can get out there. And as soon as those details are available, I'll make sure I put them out on all my social media stuff. I mean, I'm always on uh, Instagram and and Facebook, Twitter. Um, You know, it does get pushed to the website as well, and we're updating all of that this fall. So we're just in the process of getting um, the new website kind of finalized, and, you know, the new promo shots are done. So there's a lot lot of new stuff coming on um, because I'd like to say that I guess the last two songs we released, Don't Mind If I Do, and and Undam Wind It, were songs that have been kind of sitting with me for a while, and we just kind of, Troy helped me finish them off. But now, starting this September, the project with Rock in the Trailer is the beginning of a whole new project that we are coming out with, and that means new branding, new new everything. Mm. So if people are, are interested in following along, I encourage people to go check out my social media stuff. Um, send me a message. You know, I always love feedback, even if it's, you know, buy some new boots. Hey, I'll take it. I, I'm, I'm all about criticism. And, and I mean, my background before I got into country music full time was I was a teacher and a counselor. So I'm, I'm very good with listening to what people have to say and, using it to better myself. Hmm. Well, interesting. Um, Jerry, I'll just uh, give out your, your website, because if people are listening and they want to get a hold of you, they can get a hold of you at jerrysereda.music.com, and that is J-E-R-R-Y-S-E-R-E-D-A music.com, correct? Actually, actually, there's no music on it. It's just jerrysereda. Oh, okay, jerrysereda.com. There you go. And um, thanks for correcting me on that. So listen, what else is, uh, is coming up for you uh, that you maybe we haven't touched on or, or that you want to mention that we haven't uh, talked about? Just always trying to, to find new markets to, to get into and, and connect with um, some new communities. I mean, I'm always happy to do, you know, the bigger country shows like, like your uh, Boots and Hearts and mm. your Cravens and your um, Cavendishes and all those giant festivals. I'm also always happy to do all the rodeos and stuff. But I really do like when I get to go to um, Indigenous communities and, you know, experience some of their culture and hear some of their stories. And at the same time, you know, get to share some of my music with them. I, I think those are among some of my favorite shows to do because I really love connecting with the community and that's always been a big part of who I am and a big part of who I hope to continue to be. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, about your, your performances and going to different areas. I'm just wondering, how do you divide up your, uh, your, your performances in terms of whether it's you doing a solo or whether you perform with a band? Is, is, is there a division of that or do you perform almost entirely now with a, with a band? You know what, I... I always tell people it's what you want. I I still do solo performances, although not as often anymore. But if that's what people are looking for, I mean, we're always good about understanding, you know, people have budgets and people have certain tastes that they want. And I've done everything from like solo acoustic shows for, you know, a couple hundred to a couple dozen 
people. I've done house concerts. I've done backyard barbecues. <laughs> it's I'm I'm up for anything. If people want to hear some music and it, it, there's something nice to be said about those acoustic events too, because you really have some intimate moments with the people that they don't get to see when it's you with the band. Mm. Um, and, and you really get to share a, a little piece of yourself. So it's, I'm, I'm up for whatever people are looking for. I, I always say we try to accommodate whatever it happens to be. And, you know, sometimes we even come with a smaller version of the band, you know, sometimes just me and another guitar player. So a couple guitar players, we have a we have a show for all situations. Mm. Sounds great. Listen, you know one of the songs uh, from the uh, the album that uh, CD that I was given that stood out to me, uh, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit. I'm not sure what your your take is on this song. Ain't no future in the pasture. <laughs> you know there was actually two versions written of that song, and one of the songs was uh, "There Ain't No Future in the Pasture," and it was about a a guy taking his guitar and telling his dad, you know what, I'm taking this guitar because there ain't no future in the pasture. <laughs> and the the one that really hit home is the one that's on the CD, the one that we released, which was the alternate version where a kid says, you know, I know we're going through some tough times, but um, there is a future in the pasture. And he, he, he goes about setting up to do um, a fundraising concert to save the farm. And, you know, what the line in the song is, uh, you can come on over and kiss my John Deere tractor if you think there ain't no future in the pasture. <laughs> and I loved it. And I was like, I, I love it because I think that, you know, growing up in the prairies and growing up in rural Manitoba, farming was such a big part of who we were. And it's a big part of who I think a lot of Canada is too. And there are some tough times. And with the erratic weather we've been having, it's, it's crazy. But, you know, that sentiment that, there still are kids taking over the family farms and saying, yeah, we can make a go of this. It, it really hits home. And I, I love that. It's not just farming. It, it's the Canadian uh, kind of belief that we can do this. You know, we're going to be hit with hardships because we face all kinds of weather, but we can do this and we all bond together to help one another. And I think that's what makes us innately Canadian is the fact that we are there and we will make it. Jerry, I can't, uh, I can't think of a better way for us to perhaps end this interview today, but I look forward to speaking with you again and meeting you in person when you're here in the uh, Toronto, Ottawa area. And uh, I want to say uh, miigwech for joining us on the air today. You know, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, it's an honor, and I, I, again, I can't wait to pop by and see you guys when I'm in Toronto or Ottawa. I mean, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. Thanks again, and uh, we'll leave you to it, and look forward to uh, your new material coming out soon. Thank you very much. All right, you've been uh, listening to the voice of Jerry Sarita. He is a Métis Canadian country musician, and he uh, kindly joined us on the line. Uh, you just heard us talking, and Jerry talking about his song, Ain't No Future in the Pasture. We're going to leave you with that right now. You've been listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Thanks for listening.